So let's pray together. Father, we, are, we do recognize that you are, are, are good and you are the um, author of the virtues that you call on us to develop of faith, hope, and love. We know that those things come from you and we ask that they flourish within us. We thank you and know that you rule the creation with all wisdom and that you have called us to serve with you. Father, we do take this time this morning to, to recommit ourselves to you, to um, submit ourselves to your will, to relinquish those things that we're holding on to with tight, too tight of a fist, and so that we give them to you. And we uh, thank you for the uh, unmerited grace of forgiveness and freedom that you bestow on us just because you are good. Father, we do want to hope. We hope that and in order to count on your mercies. Our hope is in your loosening of sin um, that has its hold on our soul. And our hope is to grow in your grace. Our hope is to have restored relationships within our family and with our friends. Father, we do love you. We love the Savior. And we recognize we love the person who is love itself. And we ask that that love overflows to us. We are thankful for the love that sent your son. We thank you for the love that gave himself up for us. And we thank you for the instructions and the teachings that he gave us. And so, Father, we ask that you help us to live those out. We believe, and like the, like the Father said, we believe, and we ask you to help us with our unbelief. And so, Father, we are hopeful that we will experience a more perfect love that you have given us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing our, our um, series on hope this morning. And just so you know, through the summer, where we're headed, give you kind of an idea, we will be looking at hope and spiritual formation. And how does that, you know, that, we're in a, that hope is a, has a role in our transformation. We'll look at the practice of hope in our life. We'll look at this, the hope beyond hope that Paul talks about in, uh, primarily in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection. The new, new creation, the new, earth, new heaven and new earth. So we'll look at that hope, which is like the Christian hope. And that's kind of the, that's the thing that sort of distinguishes uh, run-of-the-mill hope with Christian hope. That we have this uh, firm promise from God. Uh, we will also be looking at hope beyond the tears. Uh, how do we hope when things are not going well, when things are in trauma? And how do we do that? But, um, so we're just kind of introducing some things now. Uh, in, in uh, as far as hope is concerned. Uh, Casey Gwynn is a uh, lawyer who started the um, Family Justice Center in San Diego, California. And he was asked by George Bush, when, President George Bush, to kind of expand that throughout the century. I mean, throughout the century, throughout the, throughout the country. That's a long time. Throughout the country uh, with this, this uh, Family Justice Center. And he also is the founder of Camp Hope, and the Alliance for Hope International. He's the CEO for that. So he's really big into that. And he talks about how he came to that position, kind of has to do with the trauma of his own family and the abuse he suffered. Uh, and his father was a pastor. And uh, some of the abuse that he suffered under that situation and what his, uh, what his dad was like with the, you know, uh, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of philosophy, but sort of taking it to the extreme. And, uh, but he tells a story of a good friend of his named Diane, Diane McGroden, who um, 
they were good friends in San Diego, and she had gone to, uh, to get her nails done before a Christmas party that night and started having some pains in her chest. And so she called her sister on the phone, on her cell phone, and the sister said, uh, you know, you need to get to the hospital. And she goes, no, I'm just going to pull over until the pain kind of subsides a little bit. And uh, so they, the sister finally cocked her into it. So she turned around and went to the Sharp Memorial Hospital in San Diego. And she started making her way to the door. And the pain got so intense, she sat down on the bench. And then there she collapsed. Uh, the nurse saw her, ran out, started giving her CPR. Uh, they couldn't revive her. The heart would not start beating. So they took her into the emergency room and put her on the machine that sort of compresses your heart to, if she were to recover, to keep blood flowing through the brain. Uh, at the time, uh, there was the doctor who was in charge of the emergency room happened to be on, on call or on staff that day. His name is Joseph Belizo, and I probably mispronounced that last name. Uh, but he had been working with a procedure and a, and a machine called ECMO, and it has some fancy name, but I won't even go into that because I can't pronounce it. Uh, but he, he works with this machine and this procedure where basically it takes blood out of the body, oxygenates it, and then puts it back in the body. Uh, so that the, it just completely bypasses the heart and the lungs. It's never been successfully done in the emergency room, but he thought this is a chance. We need to do this right now because she will not survive. And so they got her on the machine, and uh, she and was able to, to keep her alive, unconscious but alive. And in the meantime, this, this, uh, this Casey Gwynn, this friend of hers, went to the hospital to be with her sister and her boyfriend. And he said, we sat there in the waiting room of the intensive care, and he said, that is a terrible place for hope because it's, uh, there's nothing known. It's, it's surprising. There's tension. There's, uh, you don't know if there's going to be infections or if there's a blood clot, so you don't know what's going on. And so you're just waiting. You don't know if the news is going to be good or bad. And they finally came out, and they said they've got her. She's still unconscious, but they've got the heart going, and they're oxygenating the blood, and she was on that machine for four days and she was able to make a full recovery, which is remarkable. And evidently, that was the first, or at least the first time he had used it in the emergency room situation. And now that's used even with newborns who are born prematurely or born with birth defects and things like that. So what does that story have to do with hope? Well, what was interesting is that they started using that procedure normally in that San Diego hospital, and in four years, the success rate with cardiac patients jumped 20 points. Well, then they studied the statistics and even factored out the use of the ECMO machine. And the jump was still over 20 points with the people who didn't use the machine. And they're trying to figure out what changed because the procedures did not change. Nothing changed. And they decided that the only thing that changed was hope that the doctors and the nurses began to believe that they could save more patients. And the families began to believe that they could save more patients. And their success rate went up 20%. That's how powerful hope is. That's how powerful it can be for us. The question I'm going to ask this morning, is God working with us or for us? Is God just where we're supposed to sit back when it comes to hope and let God sort it all out? Or is there something that we can do? <clears throat> well, Dr. Joseph Belazo, after this incident, he says, I always say that hope is the bridge between the impossible and the possible. And her sister chimed in and she says, The grace of God and the power of hope saved my sister. 
So this morning, we kind of want to change what we did differently from last week. Uh, this last couple of weeks, uh, Sue and I have decided we need to declutter our house. Neither one of us like clutter. So we're going through and decluttering everything, getting things out, and you ought to see that garage. It is so nice. <laughs> it is so organized right now. And uh, um, my, my wife's favorite store is the container store, just in case you didn't know that. She loves to go to the container store to organize things, and she's brilliant at it. And our garage looks really nice. Uh, but what we did last week was what I tried to do was declutter this idea of hope of what hope is not, because we had these ideas of what hope is some sort of, and me too, I had this kind of wish that hope was kind of a wish, or so this vague emotion, or something out there, and so I tried to get rid of some of that stuff, and today we're going to look at what hope is, that it is not just this blind leap into the darkness, and, and then, uh, you know, just hope for the best. It is the decision to believe, and then the decision to do something, to trust and then to make choices. What am I going to do next? What am I going to do first? And what am I going to do after that? And make those choices. So it's this combination of trust and belief and also these choices I have to make. So <clears throat> what is it? I mentioned uh, Chan Hellman uh, the, uh, the first Sunday we talked about this. He's doing this. He's in charge of the Hope Institute at Oklahoma University in Tulsa or the Institute of Hope Research, that's what it's called. And it just goes to show that there are some good things that will come out of the Oklahoma University. But uh, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding if there's any Okies here. Uh, Texas and Oklahoma kind of have a thing. Um, <clears throat> so he is in, in charge of the Hope Research Institute at the University of Oklahoma. And uh, I, wasn't, I mentioned that uh, I read some of his papers, and then I, I listened to some of the lectures, and I wasn't sure his faith background, I wasn't sure where he was coming through as far as, as, far as uh, religion or faith or anything like that. Well, as it turns out, I went and bought their book, Hope Rising, and started reading it, and I can't put it down. It is fantastic. I mean, I, if, I really highly recommend it. It will, uh, it talks about how hope can change your life, and I'm beginning to believe that, that it can change your life. And these were really good. And anyway... Both of these guys are believers. Uh, this is kind of their research written on a popular level. And it's, uh, it, it, they don't push their faith, but they're very upfront about it. They're very upfront about it. They are believers, but it is written for just anybody, not just Christians. So you will find some, some reference to their faith and even a chapter on spirituality. Um, but it's kind of just written from the psychological perspective and, you know, for all the, the entire audience, not just for Christian audience. And they have a definition, and I like the definition. I had my own, and then I kind of liked it, and I sort of a, was tinkering with it, and I thought, shoot, it's so good, I'll just put it up there. They say that hope is the belief that your future can be brighter and better than your past, and that you actually have a role to play in making it better. I would add in there, you know, our, our, uh, by the grace of God, we have a role to, to make it better. I probably would have included God in my definition. Uh, but I think that's a probably pretty good definition. What exactly is hope? It is hope is the belief that your future can be brighter and better than your past and that you actually have a role to play in making it better. So, as we mentioned, in English, the hope is kind of a nebulous word. It uh, doesn't really capture everything that's, that's, uh, that we mean by hope. I can say, I hope you have a great birthday. But unless I'm in charge of your day, 
I can't guarantee that. I can't do anything about it. So, in fact, that's just a wish. I kind of wish you have a happy birthday if I don't have any, any say in it. But he mentions that the Judeo-Christian tradition is the first tradition to actually make hope a positive virtue, a good thing, because the philosophers always said it was negative, that it torments us. But the Judeo-Christian tradition says, no, hope is a good thing. It's a good virtue. The problem is Christian communities have taken this and said it only means going to heaven. And, of course, it includes the resurrection life. But if you look at the scriptures, it includes so much more than that. It's so much broader. It's so much deeper than what James Taylor pejoratively said, their home in the sky. It is much more, uh, much more about that. And the English verb can be a noun or a verb, but when you look at it, the, verb, the words in Hebrew and the words in Greek, really one word in Greek, and there's like five in Hebrew, there are verbs and nouns. And you can really tell the difference. And it's such a rich thing that hope is the belief that there's always action we can do. And I think that's one of the distinctive things that we don't really realize. We have this hope of the resurrection life, but if you look at the scriptures, it's almost without exception connected to action. Connected to something that we can do. It may be explaining an action. Paul talks about his hope in 1 Corinthians 15, and it explains why he was in prison. It explains what he's doing, why he's doing what he's doing. But it's almost always connected with action. It's something more than just wishful thinking. It's something more than a feeling, as the Boston group said. I don't know if you remember that song or not. My age, you remember it. Except the problem with that song, more than a feeling, Marianne does walk away. So, so what? So hope is what we do. And I really like this. I really like this idea, this phrase of hope is what we do. And I picked that for a reason because it makes, because hope is our business. It is what we do because we are in the business of hope. We are in the hope business. That's what Christians are about. That we are sharing hope. When, Paul, when Peter says that be prepared to give a reason for the hope, he says not give a reason for why you believe the Bible is the word of God or why you believe the resurrection is a historical reality or any of those things, which is all true. But he says to share the hope that is within you. We as Christians are in the hope business. Paul says three things are going to stay. Stay around forever. Faith, hope, and love. Hope is one of those things. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on. Why do, why do we need hope in the future? Why do we need hope in the resurrection life? Why do we need faith? We'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks. But those things remain forever. I love the double meaning there. It's the things that we do. It's things that when mental issues sort of spring up, and those strategies that we've used before of buckling down or working harder or, or fighting for more perfection, it, it worked for a while, but now they don't work anymore. And we don't know what to do about that. We want to do, what's, what do we do first of all when we're in those traumas? And what do we do after that? Worries are not really very good for provoking action, but hope is. Fear is not very good at provoking action, although sometimes it can be. But not like hope. It's connecting what we believe with what we really don't know. It's acting on our trust and belief of what we do. And in the face of suffering, in the face of pain, in the face of injustice and loneliness, in that dull weight of depression or that, that, that harsh sting of grief, this provokes us to do something, something different. 
that we do it, we do something. Anxiety and depression may be staying dormant in our lives. And for whatever reason, they sometimes come to the surface at the worst times, and we don't know what to do. And, and depression and anxiety, they are two persistent SOBs, let me tell you. And when they come up, you've got to deal with them. And the old ways of dealing with them don't really work, but hope does. Hope can, can work. So before I go on to any further than that, I think we've got to realize, you know, we have this, as being good Protestants, we have this, this sort of love-hate relationship with works and when we hear about works that go if you were raised were justification by faith and faith alone which is true we kind of react to that but what is about works works don't you know we can't we can't avoid we can't involve any works in all that you know if, if you're involving works you're you're a heretic well let me tell you i will preach grace till the day i die i am a firm believer in grace and when I'm talking about forgiveness, that's grace. When I'm talking about a restored relationship, that's grace. When I'm talking about justification, that's grace. But I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about living. And God has, has instilled in the creation some principles that just guide our lives. And I'm talking about successful living. And hope is a part of that. And hope is some things we do. It's always connected to a command, a responsibility, a response, or an explanation of why we are called to work. It's not just the home in the sky. Okay? So, hope requires three types of actions. And I'm getting this from their book, Hellman's book, Rise, Hope Rising. So this isn't me making this up off the top of my head. Uh, this is coming from him. So I'm just going to not plagiarize them because I just gave them credit. So... Uh, Hope requires three things, according to these guys. Hope requires goals and purposes. We have to decide what we do. We, we have goals from the morning we wake up till the, till the night, night when we go to bed. I set my alarm to make sure I get somewhere on time on Sunday morning or Monday morning. It's all about purpose. I get up and I get dressed to go and do what I'm supposed to be doing that, that day. Everything we do has a purpose. And hope requires some goal or purpose, whatever that may be, uh, whatever that might be in your, in, your, in your life right now. It may be, be preparing for surgery. It may be um, preparing for a marriage or preparing for a career. It can be a big goal. It can be a small goal. But we do everything with you with a purpose. It could be a goal of responding to a crisis. What are you going to do when you hit a tornado? When a tornado, we don't get tornadoes through here, but we do in Iowa and Texas. What are we going to do with a crisis? What are we going to do with a crisis if we get a bad diagnosis? What are we going to do with a crisis when it looks like I'm going to be going into a care facility? What does it look like in those moments? What am I going to do? What is the goal for me in those things? And it's not a habit. It's not an impulse. It's more of an intention of what we are going to do. Uh, now, goals are not always good. They're not always right. Uh, when Felix... Governor Felix wanted to meet with Paul, and he kept getting Paul out of prison to come talk to him. It's not because Felix was curious. The Bible says uh, that uh, he did that because he wanted a bribe. He was, hoping, he was hoping that Paul would give him a bribe to let him go. Paul never did. So hopes can be good, but they also cannot be, they cannot be righteous. We also require pathways, a way to get there. It's like a roadmap of how I'm going to get there to that goal, how I'm going to do that. 
uh, roadmaps for you younger people are these things on paper. And uh, they have little lines that tell you where roads are and how to get from one point to the next point uh, instead of asking Siri about those things. That's what a pathway is. It's how I'm going to get from A to B. And during those times, you may have to change routes. There may be roadblocks. There may be barriers. You may have to get, up, get another route completely. You may have to look for alternatives. But when you're on that route, you can, you can get more encouraged and more hopeful as you take steps on the route. But those two can be moral and immoral. My goal might be to own a Tesla. And I might think as my pathway is, I think I'll steal one. <laughs> Not a good idea. So there are pathways that are good and moral and immoral. And another thing I want to mention about pathways is that they're not always linear. We've got to decouple ourselves from that cause and effect. That if I do this, I'm guaranteed that this will happen. That's not always true. You may need to change paths. You may need to change goals even. You have to continually to re-goal or repath uh, these lines. And the third thing you need is intentionality. The decision to do it. To say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. We call that willpower, but I think just the intention of doing it, you're dedicating the mental energy to do this. And we each have a limited amount of willpower, so you've got to be careful there. It's easy to run out of willpower at night, or if you're not eating well, or if you're not sleeping well. So it does take that into account as well. And then hope is basically, all it is, is that you can get there from here. That's all it is. So they use a diagram like this, where intentionality and pathways relate to one another to achieve the desirable goal. And I would add in there the grace of God, the trust in God that this is what God has called me to do. So is God working with us or for us? And I think God is working with us. And I think this is what we see through all the scriptures. This is not a sit back and let God sort it all out. This is God working with us in our lives and in the kingdom. To me, one of the best pictures of this is the story of Elijah. Uh, most of you know the story of Elijah in, in 1 Kings 18. It's where Elijah is, 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 is fighting against these false prophets. And, uh, and they, they, they build this altar, this wooden altar in the middle, and each one is supposed to call to their own gods, and, and which God calls down fire on that altar, you know, is a true God. And so you, the, the prophets of Baal do that. Of course, nothing happens. Well, Elijah comes along, he pours water on it and all this kind of stuff, and he prays, and God sends fire down. And I think this is a great illustration, a great picture of what hope is, because you need the prayer, and that's what Elijah does. He spends a lot of time in prayer, Praying to God is a relationship with God, and God sends the fire. God does the work. God accomplishes the, the, the petition. But what does Elijah have to do? He has to throw the wood on the altar. And I feel like this is what hope is, is that we're piling the wood on the altar. That's what we're doing we're piling the wood on the altar for God to make use of it. And whether that pile of the, the piling the wood is maybe a conversation with a spouse or a conversation with your friends, it may be getting encouragement, it may be counseling, it may be meditation. Whatever these things are, you're piling the wood on there 
and then you're asking God to ignite it. And I think that's just kind of a great image of what hope is for the Christian. Is that yes, we take the wood piece by piece, day by day, hour by hour, and we put it on the altar, we put it on the altar, we bathe it in prayer, and let God work and trust Him to work. I think that is about faith. <clears throat> Hope, when you look in the scriptures, is necessary for saving our skin sometimes. Um, Rahab, one of the things I love about the Hebrew words is they had the verb, but then they used the noun for different things. And I mentioned this last week that Rahab, you know, had to set a, a, a rope in the window so that she would be delivered and saved when the, when the Israelites came to, to take over the promised land. Well, that's a play on words. She's hanging a hope in her window. She's hanging a hope in her window to hope she's delivered and rescued. And I love that, that picture that hope is actually can save our skin. It can deliver us. It can rescue us. It's also associated with wisdom in the Bible. That wisdom and hope are together. That this is how we live successfully. That hope isn't something that we kind of think that we maybe should to be a part of. We have to have a part of it if you want to live successfully. It's that essential. And, and the psalmist contrasts hope with, foolish, with foolishness. He said you can live foolishly in materialism or you can live with hope and trust. It's a way of living successfully. And hope is also this virtue that we can nourish and develop. Remember, Paul said, faith, hope, and love, those things remain. We can develop and nourish our faith. We can develop and nourish our love. And I assume then that we can develop and nourish our hope. That it's not something that just falls on our head out of the sky. That we can nourish it. We can do some things to develop it. And one other thing that I noticed about this in the Old Testament, this hope, is that the word is also used to, to, to collect things, to corral things, to bring things together. The Bible uses it in Genesis when God is talking about bringing the waters together. He's hoping the waters together in creation. Jeremiah talks about bringing the people together for restoration. Lamentations talks about bringing the people to restore their place. He is hoping the people together. And so I take that as hope is a collective effort. It's something we do together. I used to have a colleague at Northwestern College, and uh, people would ask what your job was, and they said, oh, yeah, I do this with it. This is what I do. This is what I teach, whatever. And I had uh, one friend, Dave Nottemacher, People ask him, well, what is your job at Northwestern College? He goes, I'm a cheerleader. And I thought, that's exactly what he was. His job was to cheerlead the students, to give them hope for the future, and to encourage them to do what they were supposed to be doing. And I thought, what a great way to look at his job. I'm a cheerleader. And I think from my looking at the scriptures, that is so necessary that we do this together, we encourage one another, we give each other hope, we say, yeah, you can do this, let me help you with this. And it happens all the time, we just don't label it. But it's so, so important. So hope is something we do. It's what we do. Um, it changes the destiny of people. 
It changes the destiny of trauma patients. It changes the destiny of a cardiac patient, of a paralyzed athlete, of a child that's been abused or a woman that's been battered. It changes. It can change your destiny. Those who have gone through disasters have to have hope to change their destiny. It is a belief and trust and then setting goals, setting pathways to reach that goal and having the mindset and intentionality to take those steps. Three things, goals, pathways, and agency, willpower. Those are what is needed. I want to show a, a short video. Believe it or not, it does have something to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he says he, he's a physicist, and he's from Portland, of all places. <laughs> and he said he they drink, wanted, that, wanted to design something because of his dislike for the cream inside the Oreo, and he wanted just the chocolate cookie, which I can kind of relate to, actually. Um, but... My point is, this is called a, 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 um, a Rube Goldberg device, a Rube Goldberg contraption. Basically, what it is is by through a chain of events to accomplish a purpose. And uh, usually, it's a very simple purpose, but they go through these whole chain, you know, where X leads to Y and Y leads to Z and that kind of thing until you finally come up with your purpose or you finally come up with your result. And so he designed this machine to take the cream out of an Oreo, okay? And... Uh, a lot of people do this, and it's usually kind of silly, silly objects that they do this with. But it, it serves a point, because the Bible is full of Rube Goldberg stories, where you have X leads to Y leads to Z, and, and things that seem to be totally unrelated, whether it's a hatchet or a, or a router or whatever, seem totally unrelated, and somehow they come together at the end with this very satisfying conclusion. And we see these in stories in the movies and things like that, but the Bible has got tons of these stories. And I find these stories incredibly compelling. And, and Ruth is one of my favorites of this. It, you know, Ruth is the story of, of, a, of Naomi, the, the woman who, they, they left Bethlehem and moved to Moab. The sons married two, Moab, two Moabite women. The husband dies and the two sons die. And, they, and Ruth decides to stay with Naomi even though she doesn't have to, just out of pure loving kindness and hope. And so she stays with Naomi, and they move back to the land. And she, and her relative, she has a relative there named Boaz, and she arranges for Naomi, uh, Ruth to, to glean the field because he is allowing the poor to come in and take what's left on the field. And then through other circumstances, they get married, and they have a son. And then that son has a son named David. And then down the line, we have another child born, and Ruth appears in the genealogy, and that's Jesus the Messiah. And I just love it how all these things seem to fit together for accomplishing the salvation of the universe, our salvation, our redemption. And it seems like it started with a woman, it didn't start with a woman, but it had a woman just happened to be gleaning a field who met the man, who married and had a son, who happened to be David, who then had another son, and Solomon, et cetera, et cetera, till you come down to Jesus. And my point is that this hope that we do, we are in the business of hope. And this hope that we do is not just about our, our own little traumas and our own crises, although know, as important as they are, but they all seem to come together. They all seem to come together in the gospel. 
And they seem to get this conclusion that we have that we are looking forward to in the promise of the resurrection life. And it's all these little pieces that God comes somehow, collects together, and brings them together to accomplish His purposes. And it all just begins with maybe a hope in something. A hope that you want to do something in. And you never know who you're going to meet, the conversations you're going to have, the people you're going to touch, the people that are going to impact, the people that are going to impact you. But God brings them all together. And it just started with a hope of a girl marrying a man. It all started with an old woman who had a son named Isaac. It all started with that. And all these unrelated stuff just starts getting collected and God brings them together and they come to Jesus Christ. Our hope. Our eternal hope. We're going to celebrate that with communion this morning. And I th- gee, God could have skipped all that stuff and just gone straight to the cross. Skip the story with Ruth, skip the story of Abraham and Sarah, skip the story of Joshua, skip the story of Moses, and just gone straight to it. But he didn't. He brought all these things together, all these, these different stories together, to this that we're going to celebrate this morning. That we're called to do this in remembrance of him. And we are to do it until he returns. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, when the Jews celebrate the Passover and the Seder, the families usually sing a song called the Yenu. And basically what that means is, it's enough. It's enough. And the song goes like, if God had just given us the Torah, it would have been enough. If God had just separated the sea, it would have been enough. If God just gave us the Sabbath, that would have been enough. But he did more than that. He did so much more than that. And so our hope is in this. He gave us the, he gave us the scriptures. He gave us the stories. He gave us the, the, the hope. And it all comes to this. And it's enough. It's enough. Jesus is enough.